episode 28 of the Tactical Breakdown podcast. Today we're talking technology-enhanced learning for law enforcement. Let's get into it. Welcome to to the the Tactical Tactical Breakdown. A podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. This is the podcast for instructors and trainers. If you are in law enforcement, the military, or emergency response, today I wanted to do a follow up episode to episode 27 on science-based training and I wanted to bring this one up because we're going to talk technology enhanced training for law enforcement. So for today's episode I'm bringing on a fellow Canadian and one of the co-founders and current president of the Canadian Police Knowledge Network Mr. Sandy Sweet. Sandy's been an advocate for technology enhanced learning within Canada's police community since 2004. He has a wealth of knowledge on this topic. I mean this is all he's done the last 20 years so it's really exciting to have sandy on the show and i hope you guys find this knowledge in information interesting and useful so let's jump right into the episode here we go all right on the line i have mr sandy sweet from cpkn the canadian police knowledge network Today, we're going to be talking all about technology-enhanced learning, online-based police training, uh, and everything in between. So Sandy and I were talking prior to the interview here, and there was a few core concepts that we thought would be beneficial for instructors and trainers in law enforcement to to discuss or, or hear more information about. One was the consistency in training, uh, better evaluating outcomes of training, certification courses for both patrol officers and instructors, and then developing a clear path for career planning, not only in law enforcement, but in the first responder community. So Sandy, sir, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you jumping on the call, man. Yeah, no, I'm excited, uh, Adam. I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to talk about this stuff. It's all near and dear to my heart. So, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be useful for, for your listeners. Yeah, I really appreciate you jumping on the call. I was I was really interested when I got your uh, you got your bio here. You've been doing this for a long. How long have you been involved with technology enhanced learning and online training? Uh, I used to uh, introduce myself by saying I was never a police officer. I was never a trainer. And truth be known, I'm not that great an IT guy. Uh, so I started uh, with uh, with CPKN. Uh, well, it wasn't CPKN at the time. It was a an idea back in 2002, really. And I thought I would do it for about a year and, and uh, you know, put together a business plan and, and a group of people who were keen on this. And I, I've just stuck with it ever since. And, and uh, it's been a really interesting journey as as not only the, uh, the technology has evolved, certainly since 2002, but but um, the buy in from police trainers and police leaders and, and law enforcement writ large around using technology to speed up their time to competency. Uh, one of the, the key rules I, or, or lessons I learned very early was that, that e-learning, which is what we focused on initially and still is a big part of our organization and, and, and product line, um, e-learning is, is not the be-all and end-all, but it's a very useful tool when used appropriately and, and, uh, and other aspects of technology-enhanced learning that have evolved since then. So, yeah, I've been doing it this long time. I've seen lots of changes, and I, I'm in many ways... Uh, um, you know, we're just at a point now where where we're really going to uh, see the benefits of, of this approach. We believe we're just scratching the surface and the next three to five years, there's going to be an explosion in, in the way that uh, law enforcement first responders get the uh, professional development they need when they need it. I'm looking at your website and at cpkn.ca and I can see that you guys have almost 200 courses on here and the content providers are all of the major police departments uh, around Canada. Where did CPKN get started? And the thing I think that everybody is interested in is the, the purpose of this type of platform isn't to take 
officers away from that in-person training and throw them strictly on a computer. It's to enhance what they're doing in the in the physical and face-to-face side of things and give them more information, right? So can you lay out a little bit about what the Canadian Police Knowledge Network is and uh, and how that got started? Sure, I'll I'll talk about the the you know the founding of CPCAN and then talk talk a little bit about the model the cops teaching cops cop stuff that that is the second part of your question. There was a federal government did a study on on human resource development or professional development in in policing back in year 2000, 20 years ago. And one of the recommendations coming out of that uh, study, and it was exhaustive, it like they talked to every police service in the country and and, uh, did a very good job of of creating a succinct report. But again, 20 years ago, some some of the findings are still valid. Um, But one of the recommendations was that the police community should come together and build a, a a hub for sharing training and using this new way of doing things, which was e-learning, and there should be a shared resource. So a bunch of police services got together and said, can we do this? They were working with a guy by the name of John Arnold at the National Research Center, the Canadian Police Research Center. And uh, John started uh, bringing this group of 20, 25 people together um, for a couple of years to, to, to talk about collaboration and what it could look like. I came, uh, I was hired by the a community college here in Prince Edward Island to, to do something similar. Uh, they have a police academy, the Atlantic Police Academy, and they wanted to get into online training. And we came across some startup money. So we jammed the two ideas together, the, the, the project I was working on for Holland College and John Arnold's project, and we called it the Canadian Police Knowledge Network. Uh, we, when we launched in October 2004, we had four courses in the catalog. And I think two of them we borrowed from other providers. I think we only had two that we had built ourselves. Um, but, but what's evolved, Adam, since that time, you know, 2004, um, this October, we had our 15th anniversary. We have, as, as you say, like over 200 courses in the catalog. We have uh, over 100,000 registered users on our LMS. Um, we uh, have become really a, a part of the fabric of Canadian police training. Um, we don't do it all, but but the part we do, we think we do very well. And we've also, in the last three to five years, become this hub for sharing course training standards, sharing uh, content. Um, we have something called the National Police Training Inventory, where organizations post all the training they have, not just e-learning, but really their course catalog out of their training unit. And so we would have the RCMP, Toronto Police Service, Vancouver, there you go, all the large uh, Ontario Police College. And so if somebody, if some trainer is looking for uh, something on uh, uh, sexual assaults or de-escalation, whatever, whatever it is, they don't have to start from scratch building a course. They can go on to MPTI, see that, there's already five courses available. One of them is a week long in a classroom. Another one is, uh, you know, four hours online, two days in a classroom. This other one is, you know, four hours online standalone. And they can, depending on what the needs of their service are, they can contact the people who've already built those courses and say, hey, can you share your content? Uh, I want to build a course that is aimed at this part of my police service. And we think it's going to be two days in a classroom. We, we want a real practical hands-on approach. So it allows the trainers not to start from scratch. They have some, some place to, uh, to, to, to go where, where there's already training uh, created. That's MPTI is part of what we do. It's, it's, uh, it's actually, I, I believe it's an underutilized resource, but it, it kind of uh, typifies, if you will, uh, Adam, the approach that CPCAN uses to, to uh, collaboration within the Canadian police community. We have, a, you know, it started out as these 20, 25 like-minded police trainers and leaders back in the early two, 2000s. But uh, now we have a board of directors that's made up of police leaders from, from across the country, typically chiefs, deputy chiefs of, of large cities or, or, or large, large city police services or, or uh, uh, police training leaders uh, from, uh, from large services. And they provide the governance and the strategic direction for, for CPCAN. 
and we have another group called the National Advisory Committee, which is about uh, 16, 18 people from across the country who, again, uh, are representative of Canadian policing and, and are typically closer to the coalface when it comes to uh, being responsible for training in their organization. So, you know, the head of the Ontario Police College, the, the uh, uh, director from the Justice Institute of BC, the head of training for Edmonton Police Service, that sort of thing. And what these advisory committee people, they, they really drive the business of CPCAN and they identify priority training needs. They identify new technology that's out on the horizon and, and uh, they, they identify research that, that we should be doing. And they help direct the, um, the activities of the 25 staff members that we have here uh, on site in, in Charlottetown PEI. So, you know, over... Over the years from 2004, when we first launched to, to now, the business model or, or the organizational model has evolved and, and, and grown and become more, more rigorous, if, if you will. And, you know, this organization, as I said earlier, has become part of the fabric of uh, Canadian police training. And, um, you know, we, we don't take that for granted. It's, you know, it's, a, it's an ever-evolving uh, landscape out there and and through the you know the, the staff members we have here who do a lot of outreach the national advisory committee and the board of directors we try to stay connected with uh, with the needs of of uh, the police services in this country and uh, you know it's the canadian police knowledge network but um probably 40 percent of our our work is done um with federal and provincial agencies like Canadian Border Security Agency or Corrections or, or uh, uh, CESAs. Um, uh, we do a lot of work with National Defense. Uh, and similarly with provincial, you know, uh, wildlife, uh, uh, natural resource uh, kind of people and anybody involved in enforcement and, and uh, investigation. So, so it's, it's about um, police, law enforcement and public safety partners. That's awesome. And one of the things that I it just I picked up on there when you were explaining what it was, and you talked about this MPTI, the training database that you guys have. Is that something that is available only to officers in Canada? Or if you are from a Commonwealth country or even from the United States, are they able to access those modules or do they have to go through uh, go through you guys and try to figure that out? Yeah, it's not just uh, it, it, it's it's protected behind, uh, uh, you know, it's pa password protected. But if somebody wanted access um, and was associated with a police service, we would we would get them access. Uh, we we want to know what they think about it as as much as anything. But if they can benefit from it, that that's fine, too. We we typically, uh, Adam, we you know, we're we do some uh, some work internationally uh we have some some client organizations uh outside of canada but most of our focus is on the canadian canadian context but we don't we don't uh um, we don't say no to anybody we're doing some work right now uh, with with some people in uh in australia around some competency framework that that we have and and they're updating their competency framework and so there's some cross pollinization there for example I've been to Ukraine a couple of times. Uh, we, we created something called the Ukrainian Police Knowledge Network. Uh, Canada does a lot of, uh, as other uh, other countries do, do a lot of uh, development work in Ukraine, helping helping them out. And uh, so um, we went over and, and, and put a fledgling CPCAN or UPCAN in, in place, uh, and they're still using it now. That was a couple of years ago I was over there. So we do a little bit of work internationally, but um, we focus more on, on Canadian context, but we don't, you know, any, anybody who is a legitimate uh, uh, law enforcement uh, first responder, we don't, we don't turn them away. What I'm gonna what I'm gonna make sure I do is we'll we'll have a link um, or some way for people to contact you or, or CPKN to get access to that if if they're either in Canada or anywhere else in the world so we'll make sure that we can link them and connect them up with you um, and if you're interested in that kind of stuff uh, as long as you're a active duty uh, or an active member of a law enforcement agency and I think if you reach out with uh, your agency's email uh, I think you should be okay right is that right Sandy yeah that's 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 the best identifier right there yeah. Perfect. Okay, yeah. awesome. So 
when we jump into it and we start talking about the consistency of training, how does a platform like this assist in, in creating a consistency in training across the board? Well, it's, um, it's a, it's a great question. And, and, um, you know, one of the things we found early on, and I'm talking 15 years ago, we built a course on domestic violence investigations with a police service uh, in Winnipeg, in your hometown. And uh, when we when we tried to get police services in other parts of the country to adopt it, they said, no, 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 we do it differently here. And, you know, I was very new to policing. I kind of scratched my head and thought, hold it now, you know, isn't domestic violence investigation, a domestic violence investigation, the principles must must be similar. If not 100% the same, they must be similar. Um, that was 2004. Now, um, that that course actually is, I think, is still being used and it's been updated. And, and But uh, we've also learned a few tricks, like you don't just have Winnipeg police officers uh, depicted in the course. You know, you make sure you... You, you you make uh, police officers or, or law enforcement people recognize themselves in, in, in the courseware. But, but now when we build courses, and I talked about the National Advisory Committee, what we do is we build courses for a national audience. So we've learned over time to not just uh, work necessarily with one, uh, with a subject matter expert from an, and a content provider from one police service, but you might do um, you know, four or five police services with their subject matter experts, and you you build a more robust course that will have more um, consistency nationally, and therefore more buy-in from the community. So you build it once, you use it many times, and and by by getting away from the model of just working with one police service, we we've created more. Um, attractive courses or more courses that are attractive to a broader base. You always, I mean, policing is, is local. So you're always going to have to tweak um, the course somewhat for the local standard operator operating procedures or, or, you know, size of the city, urban, rural, those types of things. Um, but again, you know, I come back to a, a comment you made earlier that I, I didn't comment on like the, the courses we have in our catalog, um, are some of them are standalone. They're, they're meant to be an online training course. Um, most of them, most of our courses now are, we used to build long courses, but most of them now are 45 minutes to a couple of hours is a long course at this point in time. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's trying to replace what a police officer would, would be exposed to in a day in a classroom, let's say, or half a day. So, um, uh, but some police services take that same course and they used it as use it as a blended learning uh, event where they they tell their their officers we want you to to take that course and then next Wednesday we're we're going to meet for a day and we're going to talk about the the uh, the material that was in that course and that's where they will be the learning will be reinforced and evaluated so um, and. and you know, sometimes the courses are purpose built to be blended. So, you know, instead of going on a course for two weeks, you might do uh, a knowledge transfer representing about a week of the course. And then the second week, you would actually go to the Ontario Police College or JIBC, whatever. And everybody shows up on day one with the same level of knowledge. And so it really creates a more... Um, effective uh, second week of training as again the 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 knowledge points are reinforced uh, there could be role playing there could be hands-on activity and the evaluation happens in real time so those are the kinds of um, solutions learning solutions i guess that we have in our catalog when you talk about building out these programs that are universal across the country it sounds almost more like I would rather almost use the term standardization over consistency when we're talking about building out a standardized program, whether it's used as blended learning or as a standalone course. But it's something that if, if you're in BC, if you're in central Canada, or if you're on the East Coast, they're getting the same information. Is that is that the goal of this platform? Yeah. And, you know, it, it used to be back in the day, if you if you talked about national standards, you would get shot. You know, 
people didn't like it. <laughs> people didn't yeah. like it very much. And in Canada, um, you know, in, in the U.S., I, 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 my belief is it's similar. Uh, but in Canada, policing is is a uh, a provincial uh, responsibility, and so every province has a police act that uh, outlines the training requirements to be a police officer in that province. So it's when you're building national standards, you need all those provinces and, and, and jurisdictions to buy to buy into the standard that you've created. And, you know, in, in this country, sometimes it works and sometimes there's outliers. And then you have your big city, you know, the Toronto's with with, uh, you know, seven or eight thousand police officers. And you have Kentville, Nova Scotia with 15 police officers. Obviously, Kentville's not going to build their own training standards. But Toronto can. And if they don't like what they're seeing in the rest of the country, they'll just go their own way if it doesn't meet their needs. And and it's hard it's hard to argue with them because they have, you know, uh, three three daily newspapers and media outlets there making sure that they're doing a good job. But but what we've done with our our uh, structure around the National Advisory Committee and uh, you know as as I alluded to before, we're not just about technology enhanced learning or e-learning now. Our National Advisory Committee looks at course training standards to make sure that we're using the same approach of identifying learning objectives, of outlining material, of building evaluation strategies. And if you build it once for, you know, de-escalation, you should be able to to use that same training effectively in other parts of the country because it's not really based on uh, legislation, if you will. It's, it's about human interaction. And, and so we are finding, Adam, over time that more and more of the courses um, are becoming uh, highly consistent and therefore the standard, if you will. But we, we try not to lead with the idea that we're trying to create standards. What we're trying to create is consistency and the standard will follow. One of the key reasons why I created this podcast and this platform, um, as we've discussed, and uh, you know, if you're listening to this, you've probably heard me say this multiple times already now, but the reason was to kind of get rid of that insular training or, or insular idea of these are our toys. We don't want to share them um, between agencies, between instructors. And it sounds like what you're doing is you're finding those those agencies, you're finding those people that are comfortable sharing what they've created and saying, hey, listen, we've already put the work in. Take it and run with it, right? And, and make it better, change it however you need. But here's the groundwork. We've already done it. Why do people have to keep going back over and over? And every agency shouldn't have to create something from scratch. And it sounds like you guys have really kind of rounded the corner on that and, and have created a platform that agencies and people can access and be like, you know what? I don't have to build this out from scratch. I mean, one of the biggest things for me is, I mean, collaboration, working with other instructors. I don't know where I would be if I had to start building out programs by myself. Like you just can't, you can't do it, right? Not everybody is somebody that can start and build out a complete program from nothing, right? There's not a lot of people in the world that can do that. And you always have to start from somewhere. So it's nice to see that there's some place that instructors can go to and be like, you know what? Okay. I have to build out a DT program or I have to build out, um, something like a firearms training program or, uh, you know, a crowd uh, management program or something. They can come to your site. They can come to your database and be like, all right, here's, here's three or four. You know, I, I've looked through them all. I like this one the best. I'm going to work off this one and go from there. It seems like you've really taken a lot of the, the guesswork out of st- like you said, standardizing and making these types of training consistent so that they work the best for each individual agency. Yeah. And, and, you know, not, we, we still have uh, room to grow and get better at this. We, we, but collectively, you know, we've come a long way and, and, you know, when, when you get excited about this is when um, people are reaching out to, whether it's staff members or people on the national advisory committee and saying, can, can you, you know, does anybody have, have anything on, on resiliency training? You know, uh, uh, when, when we built the, when cannabis was legalized in, in Canada on uh, October 17th, 2018, uh, um, the RCMP who was responsible and public safety Canada were responsible for training 
all police officers in the country uh, came to us and said, can you build something that is standard right across the country so that we know if um, from a liability perspective, we know that every frontline officer gets is getting the same training. And so it's not like Saskatchewan has to build theirs and Nova Scotia has to build theirs and they were going to run into trouble with in the courts. Um, so we took that on and, and, uh, and it was, um, it was interesting. And in the, the, I, I was recently at a, uh, a, a conference with a Canadian association chiefs of police con- conference. And it was interesting how many chiefs and de- deputy chiefs came up to me and said, wow, thank, thank you for doing that. Cause other than that, we were, we were cooked. We, we would have had to build our own and we had no idea how we were going to do it. And this way they had access to, um, uh, courseware that had been validated by a very broad section of not only subject matter experts, but we had a we had probably fifty or sixty people who who were just reviewers who you know took the product and and critiqued it. So by the time we launched, uh, you know, it was a pretty solid product. So yeah, that but you know standards consistency. We go back and forth on that, but but the idea is why. Why spend um, resources? Why should a police service or, or any organization spend resources building something that that where it already exists? You can take it and tweak it, but don't don't build build it from the ground up. Yeah, one of the other things that you had mentioned too, and we talked just briefly about, was blended learning. And I found that everything that I do now involves blended learning in one way shape or another for for example if we're if we're going to be doing kind of a use of force or dt program i have an online module package uh, that i can send out to the students prior to them ever stepping foot inside the class because time time is the biggest Time is the biggest issue for any trainer, right? We all wish we had more time with the students. So blended learning gives you the ability to, you know, here's here's all the academics that I want you to know as a groundwork for coming to the course. And when we start teaching the physical skills, I can reference now the academic portion that you should already have some basic comprehension of. And it saves time kind of going through it step by step in class and chewing up those valuable time, that valuable time. Right. So I think, I think the blended learning uh, way of teaching is, is by far the the best thing that we have out there right now. I don't know what, if you have a different opinion on that or. No, no, I, I, I think that is, uh, that is the one that where people can readily see the, the, the value of the online portion. Um, I mean, we, you know, I'm sure there's people listening or who will be listening to this who are use of force instructors and use of force instructors are, are typically very focused, very passionate and, and protective of th- their learning objectives and the way that they go about things. I, I saw we are it. not. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. No, it's just something I noticed <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> once but, or twice. Yeah. But um we had an event in in Toronto. Uh, I think it was 2010. It was a while ago, uh, a G8, um, and it turned. You know, so so police officers had to come to Toronto uh, from all over Canada, really. RCMP, the Ontario Provincial Police, the Toronto Toronto City Police, obviously, but but all the other, you know, Hamilton, London, everybody. There's like 16,000 police officers from, you know, three or four dozen different organizations. And they all had to be uh, exposed to some similar uh, tactics with respect to how they were going to be d- deployed. And it was it fell to the Toronto Police Service, their their uh, use of force people to train everybody. And uh, Toronto came to us and we built uh, uh, an upfront module that all 16,000 people could get through uh, in advance. And so then they came in really to to be certified, I'd say, to be evaluated on whether or not they understood what they saw online. And then they, you know, they do some drills or some, some, some practice activities, that sort of thing. So I saw that I was at a conference, uh, a, a few, uh, a couple months later, and it was the, the head instructor said, I had no idea. I, I couldn't believe that this was going to work. This was the silliest thing I had ever heard. And he said, those were the best, co- uh, cohorts of best classes of students that I've ever seen because they came in with the knowledge and all you were doing was 
uh, was reinforcing that and evaluating that and saying, yes, you got it off you go. Um, so, you know, when you blend the two modes together, then you, you as a, a police leader, as, as somebody is responsible for the quality of the, the, uh, professional development that, that, uh, is required in, in your officers, you get a, a, a great sense of confidence around, uh, this is the best and, uh, coincidentally, the fastest way to that competency that you're looking for. Do you know Darwin Tetro by chance? No. I had an interview with him and we t- he does the uh, public order policing for RCMP out of their HQ in Ottawa. Uh, we had a whole discussion on public order and we talked about, uh, you know, the uh, Olympics in Vancouver. We talked about, you know, the G8s, G20s, when they, those type of major events come in and, and some of the difficulties that they have when, like you said, you have officers from around the country coming in working together collaboratively in these in these major groups um and you have to somehow get them all on the on the same page this sounds exactly like something that would be extremely beneficial um and has been beneficial for those types of events so uh it's really neat to see how that ties together yeah one of the uh, yeah one of the other things that you'd said though um and you kind of led right into the next thing that we were going to talk about which is evaluating outcome um yeah so i'll just let, yeah, I'll let you take the uh, take the stage on kind of finishing off that that idea. Yeah, so it's it. I mean, it's it's really interesting. The the when we started out, um, what one of the knocks against e learning was how do you know it works? And hey, it's a great question. How do you know it works? So you know, you you do your po- your pre test and your post test, and you 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 measure the gain in terms of knowledge transfer. You can do it six months later, see if it's sticky or not. Like there's ways around that. We didn't have any of those ways initially, and we still don't, we collectively don't do enough evaluation. But the the conversation has turned over the years to how do we know traditional training works? Like, how do you know that it, that it's, you know, that police officers actually benefit from going through these training uh, sessions and that it, again, it's sticky and and it changes their behavior. Uh, in the ways you're looking for. So what what we've been talking about a lot, um, we, we do an annual conference here on Prince Edward Island and we bring in police leaders and trainers from across the country. And we had one speaker last October uh, uh, talking about the neuroscience of, of learning. And <laughs> he basically said, you know, if you're trying to teach people anything more than, than uh, a five-minute snippet, you've lost them they're, they're distracted. They're thinking about something else. And he walked us through this hour and a half or almost hour and a half exercise. And sure enough, um, he, he reinforced these ideas that maybe the way we do training isn't, 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 uh, the way that our brains learn, which really, you know, there was a lot of people in the room who've been doing training for 30 years and they thought it is my career wasted. Like, what's that all about? But, but I think Adam, what, what I, obviously, you know, we have lots of great trainers we have lots of great training programs and institutions around uh in the sector um and and i think the speaker was trying to make a point which was don't 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 just rely on the fact that this is the way you've done it that you know that it works how do we build evaluation programs that validate the amount of time and energy that we're putting into our training programs and and again it comes back uh, part of, part of it might be consistency. Um, you know, if, if, if you have a good course training standard and you have a good instructor, then you're probably going to get, uh, consistent outcomes in terms of your training, uh, regardless of where that training occurs, but you need the evaluation to prove it. And more and more, you know, when, when, uh, there's a, a public inquiry into, to, to, uh, you know, some, some issue between police and the public uh, training is one issue that always comes up. It's always part of, you know, uh, what, what sort of, you know, if, if a firearm was used, what sort of use of force training did you get? What kind of firearms training and, and uh, how do you know it worked? You know, so evaluation, I think is something collectively, whether we're talking technology enhanced learning, I mean, now we're getting into, you know, simulators and virtual reality and all kinds of neat, neat uh, tools 
how do we know they work? You know, so evaluation, regardless of what mode of training you're using, I, I think is where we really have to collectively up our game um, and, and be able to demonstrate um, to each other that, that the, the training that we're advocating is rock solid and will get you the outcomes that, that uh, are, are uh, supposed to come out of it. There was a study done by um, Laura, uh, Dr. Laura Huey, H-U-E-Y. She's out of um, uh, uh, Ivy in uh, London, Ontario, uh, Western University in London, Ontario. And uh, she did a study about a year and a half ago, I'll say late 2018 or early 2019, on um, research uh, done on police training in Canada. And what she found was there was very little. And so we, we, don't, we do not pay enough attention, I believe, to, to the science of uh, the neuroscience of, of, of training and, and learning and the evaluation of our various programs to make sure that they're actually hitting their mark. So I think it's, uh, I, I, I think, uh, it's a risk that, um, police leaders like police chiefs who, who get hit with the liability, uh, issues that come out of, uh, uh, I'll say, I'll say poor performance, but you know what I mean by that, by, by somebody making a mistake, um, because they weren't trained appropriately. Um, what, what I believe one of, one of the forces that is going to affect all of us in the future and in, in the, like is already affecting all of us is the need to be able to say, this is the training we developed. Here's the evaluation mechanism we use. This is how we know it works. And, uh, um, you know, I, I'm, we're, we're passionate about that now, but or, or we're passionate about that here but we know we have to continue to, to get better at that. We have a uh, instructor's round table. It's going to be a live conversation with uh, four instructors last Thursday of every month. And one of the things that got brought up for the first one that we're having on the 30th, it's going to be on use of force and defensive tactics. One of the questions that got brought up and one of the topics that an instructor would like the panel to discuss was analytics and legacy data. And that is exactly what you're talking about there is that, you know, for the longest time, if the, the only judge of whether or not your training was effective was, did we have any incidents or not? Right. It was it. Did, did anybody get hurt or not? Or did we have if we had five incidents this year and two incidents the next year, then obviously the training's working because we had less incidents. But we're starting to find that that's obviously not the case in, you know, it's every situation is different. But we're just starting now to starting to track the analytics, starting to track this legacy data going back. And when people are starting to, to peel back the layers, like you're saying, and, and researching, I haven't, I haven't read uh, Dr. Huey's study. I'm going to do that right after we're off this call. But when people are doing this research, they're starting to find all this really interesting information. And it's showing that maybe we weren't doing things the right way, or maybe things weren't being retained as well as we thought they were. Is that, did that kind of fit into what you were saying? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the great things about the advances in technology is that we, we are able to manage data much better than we could. And, you know, uh, whether you're using um, uh, tools like simulators where, you know, you can measure outcomes or you're using a rubric and, and a, you know, a subjective observation of, of, of scenario-based training that somebody's going through a crime scene village or whatever, but still you're able to harvest the, the data from that and be able to understand uh, a how well your 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 training is happening, how well it's meeting the learning objectives, and and how much you're modifying people's behavior. And and uh, you know um, there's some good some great work actually being done in in um, RCMP Depot, Dr. Greg Kratzik has done a lot of work around uh, using simulators in use of force training. Uh, he started out with just firearms training and, you know, comparing people who trained on their weapon using a simulator versus uh, another group uh, cohort that would use traditional live fire, you know, real, real guns, real bullets. And what he found was that the people using a simulator right up until the time they had to do their qualification 
which was done with with live fire, um, they actually learned better how to how to use their firearm because quite simply they could do it more often. They just and because everything was being monitored, the instructor could could find out what what mistakes they were making and help them modify those mistakes. So, um, you know, I, I I think again the the, the analytics is, is what's really key there and, and making um, good evidence-based decisions about how we modify our training programs and, and training standards. Uh, Dr. Greg Anderson in, at the Justice Institute of British Columbia is doing some good work about police officers and how they, how they make decisions under stress. And, and Greg, uh, he's done some work for us here at CPGAN, but he, he, his background is in training uh, Olympic athletes. So they measure everything down to the nth degree and they track every little bit of data. And they're looking for just minor or, or seemingly almost insignificant improvements, but he measures those increments and he can, he can then validate different methodologies and tell you what kind of uh, gain or loss you're going to get in terms of the desired outcome. So those are just a couple of examples of ways that I think uh, getting academic and 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 uh, scientific uh, or evidence-based decisions around how we build training programs is an advance in terms of the the consistency, in terms of the evaluation, and in terms of the the, what we really want. We need subject matter experts, but we also need these educators to help us build courses that and, and programs that we know are effective and we can demonstrate are, are effective for the uh, liability issues. Um, I know that I can speak from personal experience that simulators are effective for firearms training. Obviously, with the Canadian Forces, we do use a lot of simulator training. And the main reason behind it being that, you know, Live, we don't have the budget to to expend live rounds every single time we want to pick up our weapon. So the simulators allow us to to put soldiers through courses of fire daily if we wanted to without that overhead cost and expenditure of actually using live rounds on the range. So uh, it can be extremely effective. And I would also term that as blended learning as well. I mean, going back to the blended learning, it's, you know, just, you know, it's just because you don't have the live fire doesn't mean that you... They get used to having the weapon in their hand. They get used to functioning that weapon and, and clearing stoppages and and doing all the drills that they need to get comfortable. Um, and with also for some people, I mean, when you take somebody who's never held a automatic firearm before, there are a there is a set of nerves that's there where sometimes people are nervous or they feel unsafe, and it affects their ability to focus and actually learn and retain information versus uh, a purely academic arena where they know that there is nothing in that room that can hurt them so that they're not uncomfortable with the firearm right yeah i mean you see it in firearms safety courses the obviously the firearm is unloaded there's nothing in the firearm but people still like you watch somebody who's never picked up a you know a, a handgun before and it, they get they start sweating they get nervous and and these are civilians but i mean to get into policing or law enforcement, you start off as a civilian. So those are the people that are coming through the door. So there is, I think there's a huge benefit in, in simulator training for, for that purpose alone. Yeah, no. And, and I, I, you know, I don't know if in your armed forces days, you, you, uh, uh, Tim Workman, he was a major worked out of uh, New Brunswick. He, he talked a lot about time to competence, you know, it was uh, using all the, the technology you could, but at the end of the day, you had to have that skill and had to be able to demonstrate that skill. Uh, but but the tools, the training tools, allowed you to get there more quickly and also, as you as you just uh, alluded to, uh, more cheaply, which is mm. which is a consideration for sure. In this, yeah, yeah. When we talk about certifying instructors and then put building these courses out to, I mean, we can, I, we could talk about the difference between certification and qualification probably for two weeks, but we're, we'll, we'll leave that on the, on the, on the back burner for now. But when we're talking about certifying officers and instructors and what types of things that they should be going through, um, where, what do you, what are your thoughts on, on that requirement? Well, it, you know, it's, it's interesting. What, 
what we've done is relied on subject matter experts to to build training and sometimes also deliver that training. And um, I used to work with this guy uh, uh, who is uh, staff superintendent for the Toronto Police Service, uh, Darren Smith. He's passed away now, but he was a larger than life kind of guy. And he talked about the difference between a, a subject matter expert, a curriculum developer who works with that person to to really uh, chunk the, the training up into learning objectives and material and evaluation. But, you know, so taking from the, the subject matter expert, the things that the curriculum developer would need to, to build an effective course, really identifying who the target audience is and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, and then, you know, assuming, let's say this is a face-to-face -face course, you, you then hand that off to an instructor who would, who would, uh, you know, deliver the course in, in, uh, including the evaluation to, to the classroom of, of students. Those are different skill sets all along the path. And, and we used to mix them all together. So you need people who, who, uh, you need a course that has been gone through an evaluation, like the actual course has gone through an evaluation process in how it was designed and created and approved. And so that's one piece of certification. It could be that subject matter expert, uh, or maybe you want that subject matter expert doing what they do, right? You don't want them tied up all the time doing training. And then when you have the instructor, it's got to be somebody who knows how to instruct. So it's more of an educator than a practitioner, if you will. It could be a practitioner, but they better understand how you educate a room full of 24 police officers. And and so that's where, you know, where we're discussions we're having collectively with our national advisory committee and our, our board of directors. And, you know, and I'm involved with the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police uh, and the co-chair of their training subcommittee. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to look at making sure that we're building training that's defensible, that it's effective and defensible. And one way it's defensible is if you all along that path from creation to delivery, you have people who are good at what they do, and you can demonstrate that with some sort of certification or qualification. Um, I, I, uh, you know, I, an example, uh, again, I was at RCMP depot a couple of years ago, and the, the, the lead firearms uh, instructor was talking about he had to go to court because uh, one of the Mounties uh, shot somebody. And uh, so, of course, his training came, came uh up uh, uh, during the the, the uh, inquiry, and he said, "No, this is what I did, and I followed my training." And what they found out was he did follow his training. And they went back to the instructor, and they said to the instructor, "This is what he said he was trained on." The guy said, "Yeah, that's the way I did it." And the lead instructor said, "Are you kidding me? That's not our program." He said, "Yeah, I just threw that in, you know." So obviously, like there was a breakdown there in terms of what was a certified course and that instructor who pretty quickly was no longer an instructor, um, <laughs> um, you know, I'll say failed in their professional duty to deliver that, that exact course exactly every time. And so that's, you know, I think there's some, uh, there's a recurring theme in this, in this discussion we're having, Adam, but I think that, you know, the liability issue to organizations is huge. So trainers, uh, you know, those of us responsible for professional development in the sector have to be really good at what we do. And we have to be able to demonstrate to an outside party, party because the only time they're going to look at us is when something goes wrong, that we know what we're up to. And and that certification is something that is, uh, you know, I'm not advocating for you got to have a master's in education or whatever, but I don't think it's just um, anybody who could stand in front of a classroom, take a take a course outline and deliver that. It's got to be somebody who knows what they're doing. I think it goes back to the old adage that good players don't always make good coaches. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this has come up on a few different uh, episodes and, and conversations that I've had with other instructors. And I personally believe that there should be some educational component to every instructor trainer program that 
you know, modalities of learning should be in every, I don't care what you're teaching, whether it be uh, use of force or uh, you're teaching computer science or you're teaching um, first aid. Everybody should understand the modalities of learning and how people learn so that they can best instruct them in a classroom setting. I think every instructor should have to go through that because like you yep. said, you don't necessarily need to have you know a master's in education, but you have to know how you have to learn how to teach. I mean, from when I can, you know, I had this conversation uh, with Tony Blauer. It when I was a first when I first started out as a as a use of force and defensive tactics instructor, I thought I knew everything. You know, I came in there because I had, you know, I'd never been in a situation that I couldn't handle all my all my real world experience and all the fights and, and all the incidents that I've been involved with. I never had an issue, but that was because I had done the training and I'd spent the time working on myself as as a uh, to be able to function and do that effectively. But now when you have somebody like me, who's six foot, 220 pound male that's been in athletics his whole life. And now I'm trying to teach techniques to a 140 pound female and she's five foot nothing. Mm. Well, things change pretty freaking quickly. And if you don't know how to relay information in a different way than, than you learned it yourself, you have a very, very hard time as an instructor to get that person to, to retain any of that knowledge or information or make it useful to them, especially in like a defensive tactics type setting. So I think to to kind of piggyback on what you said, I think it's extremely important that anybody who wants to become an instructor should actively be searching for ways to learn about education and learn how to teach other people that that may learn differently than themselves. Yeah, yeah, no, well said. Well said. Do you, when we, when we talk about building out career paths and, and planning careers for people that move up, you know, from recruit to officer, to instructor, to, you know, sergeant, inspector, chief, when we start building out these, these career, this career plan, how does e-learning come into play with that? Because from my experience with the Canadian forces, again, is what I'm going to draw from is even as a junior officer, we were always involved in e-learning or DL type courses um, that were one up or two levels up from where we currently were so that when we got to that next level, we already had that information and knowledge available to us. Um, So you want to walk me through your thoughts on developing your career path? Yeah. And, and, and Adam, it's, it's not, uh, just about e-learning in in this context. So um, the Canadian Police Knowledge Network owns something called a competency-based management framework. This was, a, uh, it's more than just a framework. There's a whole bunch of intellectual property around, around competency-based management that was created by the Canadian Police Sector Council. And when they, when they um, were no longer funded back in the uh, 2013 or 14, we were, we became the custodian of this framework. And what it does is it, it brings you right from basic constable training through to leadership training and, 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 or leadership competencies for chiefs and deputy chiefs. And so in, in my mind, um, and what we're talking about a career path that takes you through those various, uh, um, levels in the organization that, that you outlined, but it, it, it shows you what that path looks like. So if you're a constable and you want to be a sergeant, it, and, you know, a, a sergeant in Charlottetown PEI with uh, in an organization of 60 people is a little bit different than a sergeant in uh, Toronto of an organization of seven or 8,000 people. So there's competencies and there's levels of proficiency that, that are mapped out there. But you should, as an individual, if you aspire to be uh, a chief in your organization, you should understand what that career path looks like and what competencies you have to acquire and demonstrate in order to be uh, um, accepted or, or considered for promotion to the next level, to the next level. And, and what you talked about, um, Adam, where you were preparing in advance for your next promotion doesn't happen in every, every organization in the sector, in this country, in the policing or public sector sector a lot of times 
people in some organizations are still promoted because, you know, they've been around long enough that they, they understand the promotional process and they, they, they get promoted and then they get trained to do their job as opposed to demonstrating the competence and then uh, applying for the job and, and, and competing with other people. So, you know, I think uh, we're, we're at the process, the, the, the framework that I, that I outlined um, uh, has been around a long time. It's being used uh, sporadically uh, by, and there's other frameworks around that police services in, in this country are using. But what, what we're finding is, uh, and we've been doing a, a lot of outreach with the community and a couple of workshops and surveys and that sort of thing. And actually we have a workshop next week in Ottawa around leadership competencies where we're validating that chunk of the framework. But what we're finding is people are using them for promotion, uh, for, for, uh, for hiring initially and, and, but, but selection, promotion, retention, uh, you know, identifying professional development needs, uh, mapping, allowing people to map their, their, their career path with, uh, w with a framework in their organization and, and making them, uh, aware of what the needs are before they apply for the next level. Um, but everybody's doing it a little bit differently or independently. So it's really siloed when it comes to competency-based management. And what we're trying to do is, is breathe life back into this framework as a national tool and have a consistent approach. So if you're a, a police officer on either end of the country, you have a, a career path that you can identify. Um, and it's pretty consistent with with your colleagues on the other part of the in the other part of the country, which um, you know the the framework itself was uh, to go back to that what the sector council did was bring in police from from all over Canada to build out this piece. They spent seven years and about uh, eight or ten million dollars uh, of of travel and consulting and and meetings and to 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 make sure there was broad base input into this tool. So that's what I talk about. So e-learning is part of that. So aren't university courses. So aren't, uh, um, you know, other professional development opportunities you have. So aren't just going to work every day and getting better at your job. You know, uh, coach officer evaluations, uh, your, your, your um, you know, annual performance uh, evaluation. All those things can factor into your career path and, and getting you to where, where you want to be or understanding where you got to get better to get where you want to be. So that's, that's what I mean by that. So we're, you know, CPGAN is, is that's part of our mandate that is outside of uh, pure professional development, if you will. One of the things I was really excited to ask you about um, is your Canadian credible leadership course, because that kind of flows into what we were just talking about. And if you're a, you know, if you're a junior officer listening to this, or, you know, even if you're an instructor or sergeant and your aspirations are to move up the chain, I mean, leadership training, like we've already, we've already brushed on earlier in this, in this talk, isn't something that just, it just happens. You have to actively either seek it out or have it delivered to you by your agency or department. And it, there's a lot of steps when involved with that. And you guys have come up with a, an extensive um, course. I mean, you had you had mentioned when we first started talking that the average course that you guys have is forty five minutes to three hours. Three hours being on the long end, uh, this thing's like sixty hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so what is what is this course? Where did it come from, and uh, how can people get a hold of it? Um, it's it's a great question, and and uh, we are really excited about this course. So, um, there's uh, a school in Durham, uh, North Carolina. Um, the uh, International Academy of Public Safety, who worked with uh, uh, an academic by the name of uh, Dr. Terry Anderson. This was Terry's life work, and he he wrote a book called "Every Every uh, Police Officer's a Leader." And uh, Mitch Javity, uh, Dr. Mitch Javity, liked the book, got Terry to to drop it into. Uh, an online format that uh, was accessible um, to people, easily accessible to people across uh, the U.S. So that's called Credible Leadership. Terry happens to be a Canadian. He's from uh, British Columbia, from the West Coast, uh, taught at university out there. Uh, 
before he met Mitch. So some police officers in BC got interested in it, took the credible leadership course, field tested it, said it's great. We like the concepts, but we don't like, you know, it, it was, it's, it's not, not right, quite right for a Canadian context. So what we've done over the, the course of the last, uh, I'll say 18, 24 months is taken that credible leadership course and, you know, use different, it's all the same concepts, but we use different examples, different, different videos, different, uh, learning activities and, uh, created the Canadian credible leadership course, which as you say is 60 hours online. There's 60 individual skills that are packaged into, uh, uh, four modules. Um, the intent is not to start on a Monday morning and finish on Saturday afternoon. And, you know, you, you turn any, anybody into a, a leader. It's, it's to take some, some parts of the course, like, uh, a module, let's say that might have 12, 12 skills in it and learn those skills. Typically it's, it's, it's an hour per, per skill, but put them into practice. You know, the, it's not just about knowledge transfer. It's about giving you skills that you can actually use in your workplace. Or I heard, I heard a guy last week on a webinar we did. Uh, he was doing a, a testimonial. He he loved this course, and he said it helped him with his 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 marriage, um, which actually didn't survive. So it helped him with his divorce. But now he and his his ex wife can can co parent their kids because he has better skills in terms of managing uh that that interpersonal and obviously a difficult interpersonal situation so um you can go to the to our website uh, uh cpgan.ca and uh there's a description of canadian credible leadership course and uh you can take take a look at the description uh there's a name on there randy cameron that you can give Randy a call and he can explain it more, more fully. Uh, American, uh, listeners would, I, I would say go to, uh, I, uh, or Google credible leadership and you'll find, uh, Mitch or, or, or Terry. And, uh, uh, I know that they've had great success in the U S they've had, uh, you know what, what, how this Adam ties into what the discussion we just had is, is that, this credible leadership course, it, it can be for constables who are just entering their career and, and it gives you all the basics around le leadership and gives you skills that you can use in your job at home, whatever. Um, you're, you're going to get better. You're, you know, it, it, it's complementary to other professional development programs that you're, you're, uh, that might be available to you through your police service or, or whatever, uh, on your own. Um, it's also good for people who've been around a long time and just want to be refreshed or, 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 uh, heaven forbid, some of us need, a, uh, some, some rehabilitation in our leadership skills. So it's, it's, uh, uh, but it, it is not a course that you're going to go and, as I said, just consume the 60 hours and think that you're going to be a better leader. You have to, have to really embrace it. There's a book that comes with it an ebook that you can download. Um, and what we're trying to do is set up cohorts across Canada where, where we'll have ability to do a community of practice or, or a webinar with police leaders involved. So people can, can again, uh, get, get the learnings from the course reinforced. So it's, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. We just launched in, in August and, and, uh, I don't know, you know, we, our user base is, is a few hundred at this point in time, but, uh, but the interest is is picking up, and I I think it is a real good uh, foundation for anybody who who wants to be better in in their job. I think it's going to be a great resource, uh, not only your version, but for our friends in the U.S. If, for the uh, IAPS uh, program as well, their credible uh, credible leadership program. So. Anybody yep. listening to this, uh, they can go to cpkn.ca. That's charliepapakilonovember.ca because uh, we're up here in Canada, obviously. Listen, Sandy, I appreciate you taking the time today, my man. I know we covered a lot of topics, uh, but I think I think that everybody kind of got the idea of, of what you were doing. And, and I think they understand a little bit better about the e-learning platforms and the blended learning and how it's actually starting to change the way that we look at 
leadership and training and policing. So thank you for being here, dude. No, it was one wonderful, uh, great, great conversation, Adam. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, I look, I look forward to uh, to some collaboration here in the future, and and obviously we'll uh, we'll talk offline and have that come down the pipe later on for everybody. All the all the things that we talked about in today's episode are going to be available on the show notes page, uh, so make sure to check that out. Uh, you can click it on your podcast player or visit us on the website to uh, to get all those links to CPKN to all of those different things, the the training database that we spoke to earlier. So everybody will have access to all that right off our website and uh, make it easy to find you guys. So. All right. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day and we will talk to you soon. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. All right. Take care. All right, that wraps up my episode here with Sandy. If you want to learn more about Sandy, what he's doing and what they're doing over at CPKN, Check out the show notes on your app. Go to the breakdown.ca forward slash 028 and all the links, all of the information will be there for you. Super simple. I'm excited also to let everybody know that we are going to be at ILEDA, the ILEDA Conference and Expo taking place the 23rd to 28th of March in St. Louis. We are going to be down there. We're going to have everything set up. We're going to be doing podcasts. We're going to be doing interviews with guests of the conference, with attendees, with speakers, with vendors, everybody who wants to come over to say hi, book, or you can let, or get a hold of me beforehand and book in a spot. We'll get you set up for an interview. Really excited to meet you face to face, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So we'll see you in St. Louis. Make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast if you are finding this information actionable and useful. And I hope to see you next time on the Tactical Breakdown. Stay safe.